Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Good evening and welcome to Fun Men About, about it. it on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm Mary Izette. I'm Chris Kuzmi. And we're your co-hosts through this weekly journey of all things fermented. Archived on Stitcher, iTunes, and right here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Our co-host Rachel cannot be with us today. We are pre-recording before the show tonight. Uh, tonight being October 16th, we are really excited about today's show uh, to have our friend from overseas across the pond, Pete Brown, in the house. Hi, how's it going? Fantastic. Oh, well, Ooh. there are noises happening. We're, not really <laughs> We're inside a converted shipping container and something just fell on the roof, but it did not come through. So all good. Before we get too into things, I just want to say thank you to all the people that have been coming through the brewery uh, over the past few weeks at Fifth Hammer. Um, the outpouring of love and appreciation from the neighborhood has been uh, tremendous, and we are really excited about the journey. I almost have all taps filled with, with our beer. I uh, just moments ago finished kegging a, a cherry Berliner Weiss style American sour tart. Um, and I'm excited to pour it tonight. It is New York Rye Week, so there's some events happening this week. Uh, put on by New York Distilling. If you go to, is it NYC yeah. Rye Week? It's just ryeweek.com. Ryeweek.com. There's a bunch of fun things happening. Uh, we'll be pouring some rye beer at NY Distilling on Saturday uh, that we aged in a, in a rye barrel from NY Distilling or New York Distilling. Uh, I'm excited about that. A lot of rye. I love rye. Love the spiciness. But enough about me. What do you think about me? Wait, no. Pete Brown. <laughs> I right. think you're great. <laughs> thanks. Well, thanks for coming on. So you have authored eight books. Is that correct? That's right, yeah. And your most recent just came out. Yes. It's called Miracle Brew, Hops, Barley, Water, Yeast, and the Nature of Beer. Yeah. So let's start with that. That's why you're here. Yeah. Uh, so it's been a while since I wrote my last beer book. My first three books were about beer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what was then, the first of those three? That uh, was called Man Walks Into a Pub. Mm-hmm. And uh, then my writing kind of went away from beer. UK publishers said, we love your style. We love your, your writing. Uh, kind of had enough about beer now. <laughs> Can you write about something else? <laughs> Take it to McGarry. And then I did that for a few years and then realized I was missing beer too much. So I decided to come back to it. And uh, Miracle Brew is inspired by the fact that uh, beer is the most... Uh, popular alcoholic beverage in the world. Uh, Third most popular beverage overall behind tea and coffee. And in an age where we're more and more curious about where our food comes from, where our food and drink comes from, and what it contains and how it was made, very, very few beer drinkers are actually aware of what beer is made from, Mm -hmm. which I just found really bizarre and curious. And uh, a survey in the UK last week showed that 22% of people are aware of the ingredients of beer, and 88% of people think that it's important that their food contains natural products. So there's a huge gap there uh, and so it felt like a good idea to, to write a book about what's in beer and why it's there and, and what it's doing how did your journey into beer how did how did you where did your love for beer come from so i came from the 
I came from the dark side. I, I, I started <laughs> off working in advertising. Okay. Uh, I wanted to work in advertising because when I was uh, growing up uh, in the UK, beer advertisements were the, the most entertaining things on television. We, we went through a little bit of a fallow period in terms of TV comedy, and uh, the ads were funnier than the programs. Mm-hmm. Um, I know uh, Jim Cook from Boston once said something like, uh, I love beer ads, I could watch beer ads all day, just don't ask me to drink the beer. <laughs> and uh, and in those days, beer ads really were funny. They, they were create, The idea was, you know, all the beers taste uh, identical, so you, you create brands in order to separate them. And I wanted to work in advertising because I wanted to work on uh, ads like that. Uh, I ended up working on ads like that. I worked on Heineken and Stella Artois in the UK. Um, and it was, my, it was my involvement in that that led me to become much more curious about the role of beer in society. Uh, my job was to like, kind of look at cultural trends and insights. And I was fascinated by the, the passion that people had for beer. And I wanted a book that would give me uh, more of an insight into that area. But all the mm-hmm. books in the UK were about, here are the 50 best beers in the world, here are the 50 best real ales in the UK. And I was like, yeah, okay, but what about how they're drunk? What about why people drink them? What about why we have this tradition? And there was nothing about that. So eventually I thought, I'm going to write that myself. And uh, never look back. You speak- and that's where a man walks to a, a pub, comes yeah. into mm-hmm. yeah. Awesome. Yeah, so that was the first book. Um, you know, the start of uh, a thousand different jokes. Yeah. Uh, and and it's, it's, a, it's a great title. But by the way, I never come up with the titles for my books. I'm, <laughs> I'm awful, awful at coming up, for titles, coming up with titles for books. That was from someone else. But it's a great title for that book because there's a reason why so many jokes start with Man Walks Into a Pub. Uh, it, there's this level of surrealism in a lot of those jokes. Um, uh, you know, um, a, a, a penguin walks into a pub and says, have you seen my brother? And the barman says, I don't know, what does it look like? And, <laughs> and the thing is, if you, try, if you try telling those kind of jokes, a man walks into Starbucks, or a penguin walks into Starbucks, it, it, it doesn't have the it, same it, thing. It doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't work. And, but, but the pub is this environment where you, you will suspend that disbelief, and, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and, and there's that kind of thing about beer that just, that just allows that sort of absurdist humour to, to come out. And uh, that's kind of the tone of the book as well. Uh, it's, it's a very serious, factual book, but written in a style that you would hope that kind of information, that kind of content would be delivered at a bar stool rather than from behind a, a, a lecture pulpit. Mm-hmm. I was handed that book. Uh, my friend and I started a brewery called Wandering Star in, in uh, Pittsfield, Massachusetts. And, and as he had just gotten the book, found it hilarious and loved it and, and handed it to me. And I got, I got through it. Um, I, it's, it's wonderfully entertaining. And I love, I love everything that happens. The stories are awesome. But the new book, um, you, you just said something about tradition of beer, but I heard a rumor that you don't favor Cascale much anymore. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I've been, getting, I've, I've been getting a lot of... Uh, uh, here's, the, here's the thing. Uh, and the, the reason that this isn't an issue for me personally is because I was the author of, a, of something called the Cask Report uh, for nine years in the mm-hmm. UK. And the function of this report was to promote Cascale, uh, to, to, to sing its virtues, to prove to publicans why they should be stocking it. Uh, and after nine years... Um, I decided to withdraw from doing that uh, because I was being given too tight a brief. Uh, I'd always said that I would write a very positive report, but Mm -hmm. it would be honest. Right, and that position became compromised, uh-huh. uh, and and it was what what that's been doing is it's been really kind of the report and a lot of the other energy around it, around Cask at the moment has led to a massive growth of uh, the distribution, uh, the availability of Cascale. Now Cascale is a very special, uh, mm-hmm. unique kind of beer. Mm-hmm. It, you need to know what you're doing with it. It's uh, it requires some extra attention, care, and effort in the cellar of the pub, 
and it's being stopped in a lot of pubs now that don't have the expertise, that don't have uh, the, 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 the knowledge and frankly don't care. Right. And so where I live in London, um, most pubs that stock Cascale are serving a substandard product. Right. Uh, that's just not good enough. Uh, the public are not educated on it, so they don't know that this is substandard. Uh, the typical thing when you take a pint back to a bar and say this beer's not right is, well, no one else has complained. Right. And yeah. you're like, yeah, they don't know how to complain. They don't know what to complain about. And so you look around these pubs and you see uh, pints of Cascale that are kind of two-thirds still full that have been abandoned on the table. Yeah. And you're just like, this is not right. This is going to kill Cascale. Yeah. Uh, and and my, my message was to... I, I, I thought it would be shocking if I said I've stopped drinking Cascale in London, which I have, um, because there's just too many pubs that are, that are bad doing it the wrong way. Sure. Um, and and my, my message was, look, if you're not prepared to put this extra care and attention and effort into it, just don't stock it. Please do us all a favour. Let the guys who care about it stock it and just leave it alone if you're not going to put that effort in. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's open to a bit of a debate. Yeah. <laughs> so what is your personal uh, take on how to serve cask? Like, do you believe in cask breathers and... Um, I, I do believe in cask breathers. Uh, I think my, my thing is that the campaign for real ale, I mean, this is a whole huge rabbit hole. We'll do the American version, the American, you know, yeah, concise. A little, a little widget on the top of a cask that, uh, that um, stops oxygen from getting in and allows a natural blanket of carbon dioxide to sit on top of the beer so it About lasts longer. PSI-ish. Sorry? About 2 PSI-ish yeah, yeah. coming in there, yeah. Uh, so the campaign for real ale, or certain large parts of it, think that cask breathers are not natural it's not real ale it's not real cask if you do it um i've yet to find a cask ale brewer who thinks that cask breathers are a bad thing right and i would tend to side with the guys who make the beer (laughs) rather than the people who are on their own pulpits about it but whatever it is i think i think if you're a if you've got a pub seller um, it's a bit like, you know, I, I make my own sourdough now and, and so I'm, I'm kind of very much aware of how yeast, uh, rea- and also the research for the book, you know, yeast responds and reacts to its environment. It evolves within its environment. And one pub seller is not the same as another pub seller. And you need to take the time and go, okay, well, the instructions say that I should leave this beer to breathe for three days before putting it on sale. But in my cellar, it kind of needs an extra day or it kind of needs only needs two days and and just having that love and that passion for it yeah we we, we spend too much time again we're passionate about this we're passionate. And then our actions don't live up to those those words and when you get a publican who's totally totally fascinated by cascale and really into it you know you're in very good hands mm-hmm. but it's it's an obsession it's a it's it's a hobby and it's a vocation beyond just the kind of okay i've ticked all the boxes on the form for example my i did a a sellermanship course uh, about 10 years ago. I am a qualified Cascale sellerman, and that terrifies me because <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to, I don't know how to do it. Uh, but, well, okay. but it was a one day course. There was a multiple choice uh, test at the end and they gave us the answers. And then we got a certificate saying we'd, we'd passed the course. Yeah. That, that's and just not yeah. what Cascale needs. Yeah. We have enough, I mean, here in the US, obviously we have some Cascale and it's probably mm. a whole nother controversy. Um, but here in the U.S., we have enough trouble just teaching bar owners to keep their draft oh, yeah. lines, lines clean. clean yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and that's the, I mean, if the, you can't even keep a draft line properly clean, there's no way you can taste, k- take care of a cascale. No, that's I it. mean, or, you know, make sure that your kegs, they go into the cold box and they stay there until they're kicked. Like, yeah. It's you know, not enough that nobody's complained yes. yet. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I just, I just think, you know, beer is, beer needs to be treated with, with that kind of care and attention. Um, I was inspired to kind of get more vocal about this by a visit to Belgium last year. Uh, I went to visit Dry Fontainen, uh, Mm -hmm. who just started uh, brewing their own uh, lambics again uh, that they then uh, uh, blended to their gears. 
And and those guys don't want to grow exponentially. They they want to work with bars that understand their beer. Uh, they want to to develop deep relationships with a handful of suppliers, mm-hmm. with sorry, with a handful of of of, uh, of, of retailers, mm-hmm. and make sure that the beer is the best wherever it is. And it's like, well, that should be enough for people. Uh, and if you're not gonna, if this place isn't gonna uh, put the care and attention in, I'm gonna rip it out of there and not mm-hmm. let them sell my beer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's something we talk about a lot. Is also where even owning a brewery, talking about, you know, are we going to do crowler or growler fills? We just got a crowler machine. What about cans? What about bottles? You know, what about what happens to your kegs when they go out in the world? Because as a brewer, if you your beer mm. is met to taste and smell and and be a certain way, you don't want that to change as it, when it goes out in the world, yeah. you know, for however, however that is. I think this is so. one of the things that's so interesting about the growth of tap rooms in the U.S. Uh, and uh, I, was, I was speaking to Bob Peace, uh, from the Brewers Association, and he was saying that tap rooms are becoming, you know, the, the big growth driver at the moment. That's yeah. the kind of the new model that Absolutely. people are, are following, and uh, I think that's really interesting. Uh, I think from a, from a consumer point of view, it's probably more about being hyper local right. than, than it is, which which is another interesting thing. But I think you know, if you're making your beer and you're putting it through your lines and you're selling it in your place, there's not going to be anywhere better than that, I, is there? Right. Definitely, definitely. And the other thing I think is interesting, at least, you know, we've only been open for a little over two weeks now, but I, I see it in other breweries. Um, I'm secretary to New York City Brewers Guild right now, so we go, you know, I go and visit a lot of breweries, and I feel like the brewery tasting rooms here in New York City are really community places. Yes. They yes. draw a lot of neighborhood. They host community events, um, and it's it's really cool, and that's something that we do see in some bars. But I feel like it's even more of a, of that atmosphere in a lot of the tasting rooms. I think there's so much richness there. I mean, beer. When I get sentimental about beer, it's all about it being a community thing. It's all about it, beer brings people together. Mm-hmm. I, I've always described it as the most sociable drink in the world, uh, and we're seeing some, not many yet, but some brewers doing a similar thing. We uh, uh, where I live in North London. Um, uh, in, in Hackney, it's kind of the uh, scaled-down equivalent of Williamsburg in New York City. Uh, it's, it's that kind of area. And uh, there's a brewer there, 40 foot, and they're, they're literally five minutes' walk from my house, and there's a very big Turkish and Kurdish population uh, in the area. And there's a, a Turkish food writer who was exiled uh, by Erdogan, who was really into his beer. I mean, God knows what he was writing about food. <laughs> in, order to, in order for the president to see him as a threat, you know. Uh, but but, wow. uh, but, uh, but the brewer's been working with him and his and his colleague, and they're, they're kind of matching up uh, their beers with Turkish food and getting a big grill out outside the brewery and, and, and doing these kind of uh, kebab and, and beer nights. And it's, and, and it's just wonderful, you know. And, and things, there's also a big... Uh, uh, a big um, uh, Caribbean community there, and uh, and getting these old uh, Caribbean people out, uh, Afro Caribbeans, and, and just kind of uh, make brewing stouts, especially for them that, that remind them of home, mm-hmm. the melting pot and for, uh, and yeah. doing doing kind of food, uh, that kind of food as well. It's just just beautiful. Awesome. We are going to take a very brief break, and we'll be right break. back. Break. break. She's break. not going to bake between. But <laughs> <laughs> mad about it. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. 
George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Welcome back to Foment About It on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are here in the studio with Pete Brown. Uh, his latest book called Mir- Miracle Brew, Hops, Barley, Water, Yeast, and the Nature of Beer. We were just talking about a lot of what the nature of beer is, being a social lubricant. Uh, the lubricant of social intercourse, I believe, uh, is what I like to call it. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty <laughs> that's good. kind of the nature of beer. <laughs> Mary, yeah. That reminds me of a recent <laughs> conversation we had. No, so let's talk about. So I think right, I've writing a book is a, an arduous, long yes. process. Um, but there's always things that you discover or take you by surprise. I would say. Was there anything like that? that always, that always happened for, in this book. For me, every every book I write changes my life in in some way. Uh, it's it's the joy. The, the reason I write books. It, it's certainly not for the financial gain. It's uh, it's because of the amount that I learn and the, the journey. I hate using that word. In that context, but the journey that I go on uh, when I'm writing it and the things well, that I learned. Glory had one, and Glory was literal. <laughs> literally, was literal. Yeah. Uh, yeah. God, oh, this time ten years ago, I was slowly losing my mind on a container ship. In yeah, <laughs> that's a great book, and I've been handed. I was just telling you in between that since I've been uh, I've been handed that book twice. Uh, by yeah, my wife was like, oh, that's Barry, great. Little IPAs here. Book. It's a great, great book. Thank you. I mean, this one's got elements of all my previous books really there was a lot of the great thing about it in the the publisher that i did this with in the uk uh it's called unbound and and they have this kind of new crowdfunding model it's kind of a subscription model which is how books used to be done hundreds of years ago um and so normally when you're writing a book you keep your cards pretty close to your chest Mm -hmm. until the book's done this one i had to go out and talk about it in order to crowdfund it and so the that produced this very unexpected effect, which was I was going to write it mainly from a theoretical standpoint. And then as soon as I was talking about the book and what it was going to be about, people started getting in touch and saying, well, if you're going to do that, you need to come over here and see us. You need to, you need to come out here and, and do this thing with us. So it, it turned into more of a travel book than I was expecting it to. So for the hops part, I picked hops in Yakima Valley, mm-hmm. which was always been a lifelong ambition. Uh, I picked hops in Tasmania, well, wow. <laughs> uh, which was just incredible because uh, a brewery down there, Stone and Wood, said, "Mate, you, you're missing out half. You're missing out an entire hemisphere from this." Southern hemisphere, <laughs> <perhaps, laughs> <'cause it's laughs> pretty hemisphere. beautiful. Uh, yeah, I ended up going to uh, to Bamberg uh, and looking at uh, Wyman uh, Maltings there mm-hmm. and exploring smoke malt. Uh, going to Maltings myself in um, uh, in the west of England uh, and understanding the, understanding things kind of firsthand. And and I've always found in everything to do with with beer that. Uh, you can read as many books as you want, but there's no uh, substitutes for, for seeing it and doing it yourself and coming to understand it uh, from that point of view. So I started the book thinking I'm going to, uh, you know, being some 
referred to pretty universally as a beer expert, I thought I would put aside what I thought I knew about ingredients. And I was right to do so because most of it was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, I, I had malting completely wrong in my head and I've been telling people rubbish about malting for, for years so, and, and so so doing it you know, I went to traditional floor maltings and pulled the rake to turn the malt mm-hmm. and all this kind of stuff um, and it was just a joyous thing to get up close and personal with the different ingredients going to yeast labs where uh, there's, there's a, a, a national yeast collection uh, in uh, in the uh, southeast of England uh, after the after the blitz and uh, a lot of brewers were, were destroyed and when the brewers destroyed the yeast culture gets destroyed so you can never quite recreate the beer. So in 1951, uh, the brewing industry created this this cryogenic vault of different brewers' yeasts, and now you can go there and wow. call up all these yeasts from forgotten breweries and, oh, and that kind of thing. So that cool. was pretty I'm awesome. Not aware of that. That's, that's very cool. Wonder what the shipping is like overseas. <laughs> <laughs> starting to count. Um, nature of beer uh, and the people you've seen on this. So what is that part of the chapter? To nature of the nature of beer, I, I think um, it starts off, actually, the, the, the start of the book is uh, a friend of mine works for uh, a brand called Carling, uh, biggest, biggest mainstream like macro brand in the, in the UK. And, um, and they decided that because the brand has been commoditized and craft is kind of turning people's heads, mm-hmm. they, would, they would dial up the natural attributes of the beer. And so they did these posters uh, with just a simple glass of beer uh, in a field of barley. And it said, Carling, made with 100% British barley. And people like me went, oh, I, th- I, thought, I thought they used kind of malt extracts and rubbish and stuff. That, that makes me reappraise the brand. Loyal Carling drinkers said, ugh, I don't want grass in my beer. Can't you go back to making it out of chemicals like they always used to? And they got complaints you know they've always made it out of they've always made it out of 100% british barley but when they told people that's what it was made out of loyal drinkers start complaining that it didn't taste as good as when it was made out of chemicals wow. <laughs> and and beer has that reputation which i think is very sad and so i wanted to kind of really focus on the fact that this is a natural product um I, the, the the last book i did was a book called uh, the apple orchard uh, which was following on from a book I wrote about cider, and I wanted to go one step back from cider to the to the culture around the orchards where it's grown, apple varieties, the mythology and history of the apple, and so this book was partly an attempt to recycle that idea with beer. <laughs> with beer. Yeah. I knew, okay, uh, the apple is to cider what uh, hops, barley, water, uh, yeast are to beer, and yeah. and just revel in the kind of naturalness and the that getting close to the land. Uh, I think there's a big trend. Uh, the more time we spend online uh, and in virtual worlds, the more we have a need to reconnect with the land mm-hmm. uh, and 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 with nature. Uh, I think nature writing has been a, a huge growth in nonfiction in the last five years. And oh, the cool. cynical side of me is like, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it reminds me of one of my favorite quotes. I know I say it all the time, so Mary's probably tired of me saying it, but... Uh, Randy Mosher wrote a book called Tasting Beer. Yes. And in the beginning of this book, he talks about uh, because of the interpersonal relationship between terroir and and the grape, it's said mm. that God, however you define that, uh, makes wine. But beer, man makes beer because of all the, the human touches that happen from the grain or you know, after yeah. after you get it from the grain, after you get it from the terroir and the choice the choices the brewers make to put it into a beer. It's like uh, it's man made. And uh, yeah. you know, every time you take a sip you're taking you're, it's, a, it's a window into the brewer's soul. And I always thought that was yeah. very beautiful. But with all that, it still starts in the ground and with nature. And, and it does. I think, I think it's an interesting point on which to compare. And I would, I would com- t- totally compare cider to wine. 
Um, but it's an interesting comparison. Uh, when you talk to winemakers, um, they're quite jealous of brewers in some ways because, as as you've experienced, you can you can start up a brewery, get the kit, and within a couple of weeks you can be running a test brew. Right. If you if you want to start a winery, you've got to find the soil, plant the vines, and wait for seven years. <laughs> right. Uh, so so beer, beer, you are free to pull these different ingredients from all sorts. I, I make the point in the book that you could be a brewer in. Uh, you could be a brewer in New York uh, using hops from the Yakima Valley, uh, barley from Germany, and you're still a local brewer because mm-hmm. you're making the beer there in, in, in Brooklyn or whatever. But, but when you trace the ingredients back to the source, the, the terroir of each one is just as important as mm-hmm. it is with wine, as it is for, for grapes. Uh, and I, I, terroir was a, a concept that I spent a lot of time thinking on in the book. And, and what surprised me is that of all the ingredients, because um, terroir relates to all of them, really importantly, but probably water is the most terroir-influenced yeah. of all. And, and I, I like the, the best English translation uh, I've heard for terroir is, is land taste, which, which I really like as a, as a term. Land taste. Yeah. And when you get water falling as rain, and it then flows through the ground, mm-hmm. uh, and the character of the water is dictated by the, the rock, the soil, the shale it flows through, that is the most literal expression of land mm-hmm. taste that I can possibly think of. Uh, you're tasting, you're literally tasting the, with the salts and the pH and everything else that's in the, the water by the time you use it, if you're using untreated water. Uh, it, it literally is the taste of the land that mm-hmm. the, the brewery or the well or the spring uh, stands on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. And, and water, I mean... Originally, before all the treatment methods that are used now, yeah. water did dictate some style. Absolutely, some and I, I realized because it, or created it, created them. It, it did so without people noticing. Mm-hmm. So yeah. people just knew that if you tried to brew a pale ale in Burton on Trent, it was better than a pale ale brewed anywhere else. They didn't know why for a long, long time. Uh, if they tried brewing lagers in Burton on Trent, it wouldn't have worked. Right. And conversely, you go to to Pilsen, and they knew that just. The, the, the water was gently guiding them towards the perfect style for that region. Mm-hmm. And you can't swap right. <laughs> the, the lager and the, and the pale ale over. Um, the, the, and same with uh, Dublin uh, and Stout. Uh, you know, the, the roasted barley that they're using in Guinness uh, is quite acidic. And the water there just happens to be quite alkaline. So it balances out beautifully. They didn't know that. But it just works that way. And, you know, if they, if they try to make a different style, it's just not quite as good as when they make that style. And so unknowingly, water, is, as you say, water has basically guided the development of some of our most distinctive beer styles in, in their places of origin. Mm-hmm. And I think on the kind of talking about modern water, one thing at least in America, in United States particularly, is that a lot more breweries are thinking about the safety of their water, right? Mm, and of environmental course, yeah. conservation, we have a lot of, you know, there's a, a lot of debate um, in fracking and what yes, how that will yeah. affect your water. I know that a lot of the D- Detroit brewers have had, you know, a really hard time. And so breweries around the country, you know, regardless of how much treatment, if you don't have clean water to mm. start with, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult thing. So. It is, yeah. And it's, uh, it's, when you look beyond the brewing as well, the, uh, that ratio of, of the, the amount of water used to what's in the beer uh you know maybe 10 15 years ago you were using 10 pints of water for every pint of beer you brewed now, that's totally unsustainable now yeah uh and i know people like and i was a bush manager to get that down to kind of three or two 
yeah. pints beer water used for every pint brewed um i i found in the book there's some brews on the on the west coast where you just had that drought forever mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh you got the experiments in uh, in using gray water and and recycling that yep. you know, from 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 techniques that were pioneered by nasa right <laughs> so there's just it's you know once you dig into it it's, there's so much fascination there so you are just beginning your United States tour, yes. correct? So I have to ask, are there certain beers or certain styles that you're looking forward to ta- to drinking in the United States or certain things that you're looking and experiencing? Well, there's two, there's two aspects to that. One is that uh, for all that we try in the UK, nothing quite equals the taste of hoppy IPAs in the US. We're still not quite there. We're, I mean, I know how much effort's been put into things here, but we're just not there in terms of cold chain distribution. We, we, we're a long way from that. Uh, and also, even with cold chain distribution, you know, you're, you're getting these hops fresher. Here. You're, you're probably getting them first ahead ahead of those guys in the queue. Mm-hmm. And and just the beers I'm having in, you know, fairly odd established brands in fairly just okay bars they taste better than a hoppy ipa does in the uk <laughs> so i always miss that the, the other aspect to it is that whenever i come here um i always find something new that, that we're not yet doing in the uk and i go back to the uk and i see it starting to happen and it's like oh yeah we're catching up we're catching up uh and then i come back over here again it's like oh no you guys have been <laughs> moving forward <laughs> as well we're not catching you up at all uh and so i'm just waiting to see what the what the new stuff is cool. uh, i've i've been told to look out for uh, lager yes uh, yeah people are making some good pills yeah. here oh, yeah. we've got lager. it we're really excited about that yeah. here like kind of it's it's come full circle or like brewers yeah. are very excited about having pills or not because we went so far in the hop side but us as brewers well, man we need, yeah. to, we need something to drink while we're making these other stuff i'm too. i'm waiting for malt to have its day yeah i, I keep predicting it's like, okay we've done hops and then i got right now it's going to be malt and it, and it wasn't it was yeast and sour right. because and it's like bacteria, and we, yes. yeah because yeah. <laughs> if you because if you're pushing the boundaries of flavor that's the next most obvious place right. to go right. uh and then so that's kind of happened now and i think i think one of the things with lager is well it's about apart from refreshing and sessionability it's about technical excellence yes if you're gonna if, you, if you're gonna make a good lager it's it's that's where the brewer can go look at me i i don't just have to make stuff where i can dry hop right the hell out of it to cover up my mistakes right. i can there are no mistakes in my you're right. Absolutely. Uh, but, but at every juncture i keep waiting for malt you know the, yeah. the, the the incredible variety of flavors in different malts uh i keep waiting for people to come back to that and there just doesn't seem to be an appetite for it but uh, I'm hoping soon, it hopefully soon. I totally yeah. agree with you. Also fascinating. We're seeing a lot more, um, like I was mentioning in New York state has this farm license. So we have, now we have maltsters in New York state and Great. a lot of people growing grain and hops. But one thing is that hops can, you know, have a limited kind of more limited mm. areas of the country that they can be grown, but you can grow barley a lot more places. Yeah. Um, yeah. so I think that's one thing that we might see, you know, you could see barley from North Carolina and, you know, these kind of micro cultures, mm. micro environments that produce different flavors of barley that we might not have even seen yet. Yes. So yeah. I'm hoping that, you know, we'll see that and see, the, you know, that'll be a whole nother type of terroir of land taste. Yeah. I mean, this, this is the thing with four ingredients. You've, you've got so many places you can go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of the book, I had a really interesting conversation about Reinheitsgebot um, with people in Germany who both love and hate it. And and the final word in the book goes to a guy who uh, is a professor of brewing at Weinstefan, uh, you know the oldest brewing brewer, brewer in the world. It's also a university, and um, and he was just saying he underlined the point that with four ingredients, the combinations of them 
there's, there's, we've explored so little. I mean, it's, it's great that people want to experiment with, with barrel aging and adding different fruit and different spices and that kind of stuff. Okay, fine. But, but what you can do with those four ingredients and just those four ingredients has, has barely scratched the surface. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the week that I spent in Bamberg was a, a wonderful week. And uh, I was drinking a, you know, a huge variety of, of, of beers, uh, you know, Rauk beer, Martzen, Oktoberfest, Hellas, Keller beer, you name it. And I got to the end of the week, I thought, shit, everything I've drunk this week has been a lager. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's how diverse lager is yes. mm-hmm. when, you, when, you, when you push it as a style. And we just think of lager as this kind of golden pilsner and it's, uh, there's, there's so much there. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, if you're bored of, if you don't know where to go next, try a, try a Martzen, try a Bock, try a, an Oktoberfest. And, and I think you guys in the States, have, you know, there was always that kind of push to kind of nail all the styles mm. when, when, when that was kind of the first wave of craft, craft over here, I think, before people got, got more experimental was like, right, we've, we've done British styles. What about French? What about, what, what about Belgian? What about German? And uh, we're still in the UK. We're still a bit too hidebound on a, well, it's either we've got our tradition. We've got to preserve that because right. it's got all British beer or it's let's do whatever the Americans are doing. We have the advantage <laughs> of not having traditions. Yeah, yes. exactly. And by being sure to stay in that, in that vein. And on that note, we have to wrap up because we're out of time. But um, if you want to find more about Pete Brown, your website is petebrown.net yes. and you have your event calendar. His newest book is Miracle Brew, Hops, Barley, Water, Yeast, and the Nature of Beer, which is widely available on the internet and at bookstores near you. If your local bookstore does not carry it, please ask them to. Pete, thank you so much. Yes. Thank you. What a great chat. Cheers and happy journeys. Thank you very much. For men about it. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.